Acts chapter 21. You know, we actually did uh, two new songs this morning, uh, Make Your Home, and then that last song, which is a modern hymn called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Did you guys like those songs? Good songs, right? You know, it says, sometimes people say, why do we keep singing new songs? Because it says all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, that uh, especially the book of Revelation, that when we get to heaven, we're going to sing a new song to him. So we kind of got to get used to learning new songs. That's the way I look at it. But I also love the fact that there are people out there sort of being inspired of God to, to, to put these things down. That's that last song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, right? Book of Galatians. You, you read that song, if I gave you the lyric sheet, and it's like scripture from all over and it's perfectly interwoven. Uh, it is such a beautiful song. So I love it. It's going to become a regular for us, I believe. And I love the... Just singing to the Lord, but especially singing scripture to the Lord. I think it blesses him, and of course it blesses us. So we've made our way all the way up to Acts chapter 21. Uh, I think it should be a pretty straight shot from here all the way through to 28. There might be one week possibly where we have to split the chapter in two. But we're on our journey to the end of, of this uh, wonderful New Testament history a document that we have called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So today we are reading beginning in verse 1 down to verse 36. If you'd like to follow along, we'll have it up here on the screen for you. The Word of God reads as follows. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to Coos and the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera and finding a ship Sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went, up, went with us and brought with them one Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple, 
with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and how they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiation of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. And we trust that you have already piqued our interest and stirred our hearts to want to understand these things and to to know what it means not only for, for Paul and the people experiencing these things, but also for us. How do these things, Lord, relate to our lives here today? And we trust that you will be our teacher as always and that you will minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it starts out here in verse 1, uh, now it came to pass when we had departed. Remember back in Acts chapter 20, Paul and his entourage were traveling back toward Jerusalem. He had uh, celebrated the Feast of Pentecost uh, up in Asia, and that now he wants to head back before the 50 days of uh, 
uh, whatever I said, uh, Passover, is what he had celebrated this 50 days until the Feast of Pentecost, and he was hurrying to try to be back in Jerusalem if possible before Pentecost. Uh, he had something on his mind, something on his heart, and so he's trying to make this journey, and so he had stopped on the beach of Miletus, uh, 20 or 30 miles uh, on the coast away from the city of Ephesus, and we had that beautiful scene where Paul met with the Ephesian elders and knelt down and prayed with them and shared his heart with them. And as Paul did that, then they came to a conclusion, they got on the ship, and they continued to make their journey some 400 miles from where that scene in Miletus took place down to uh, the coast of um, Tyre and Sidon in that area, uh, where they finally were getting off the ship and then heading inland, uh, hopefully to go to Jerusalem and be there again before the feast. So it says in verse 21, now it came to pass when we had departed, there and the, uh, Luke just gives us sort of the, the course of their journey. But it's interesting that that word departed in verse 21, again remembering the scene last week and the, the, the feeling, the emotion between Paul and these people. It says when we had departed from them, that word departed literally means that we tore ourselves away. So it's like someone who, you know, you're saying goodbye to them, but you don't just say goodbye, a handshake or maybe a quick hug. It's like there was a line of people to hug and each one was holding on, going, you know, not going, no, I don't, I don't want to leave. I don't want you to go. Because Paul had said, you know, I know that you're not going to see my face again from this point forward. And so there's this, still this lingering here in, in chapter 21, verse 1, that when we had departed from them, you know, there was this tearing of themselves away because of the love between Paul and between the leadership there of the church of Ephesus. So as was often the case in those, those days, remember there was no internet, there was, you know, you don't just go down to the travel office as you used to do a number of years ago and say, sit down with somebody, hey, book me a trip. You would just go to the seaport and say, hey, is there any ships coming through here? Or are there any ships docked right now? And where are they going? And these were not cruise ships. These were often grain and cargo ships. So if you were able to get passage on a ship, that meant you were usually going to be sleeping on the deck in the weather because these were not ships with accommodations. They had a bucket for you to use for the restroom, and they had a deck. And if you could bring your own tent, remember Paul was a tent maker, often they would make tents that were able to be secured to the decks of ships. And so this is the way that they traveled. So now they found a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. They went aboard, they set sail. And when they had sighted Cyprus, so he's just giving us the details of the journey. Uh, we passed it on the left. We sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre. So now we're at the northern shores, uh, north of uh, the whole Galilee region there. And we're, they were coming into the area of Syria. And therefore the ship was to unload her cargo. So in verse 4, And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So it took several days both to unload the cargo, and of course they didn't want to leave empty, so they were waiting for other cargo to take to the next destination. And it says, And finding disciples, we stayed there. It's not like they just stumbled upon these disciples. The language would indicate that they were seeking these disciples. And it seemed to be always the case with Paul, as we've noticed his travels, that when he went to a city, not only did he go to a synagogue, but he would also look for believers. Were there believers in that place, in that city and here, as they were going to be a few days, he found a group of disciples. And they met together. 
So as I was mentioning earlier, it's so important, especially when we're traveling and away from, from home, to find disciples, to find a church, and to go and visit and worship the Lord and you know, meet people. I've done that many times in my travels over the years, just traveling on business and, you know, being somewhere midweek and finding a church locally and going to a Wednesday night service and end up just having wonderful conversations with people. Uh, So it's something that I think we should do. We should seek fellowship, you know, plus when we're traveling, it keeps us in fellowship. It keeps us in a place where we're thinking about the Lord and where there are others, you know, you, you never know that God might have something for us. Maybe he wants us to encourage someone as we walk. And I remember a number of years ago, I was traveling, I was up in Silicon Valley, um, and again on a Wednesday night. So I looked around, I found a church, and being Calvary Chapel, that's what I was looking for. So I found one, um, went there, and as we uh, you know, went through the service and whatnot, I got, you know, afterwards I got to meet the pastor and uh, you know, introduced myself, said I'm a fellow pastor, but I'm bivocational, I'm working, I'm here on business. And so we took a few minutes and, and talked, and within just a few minutes... This pastor, knowing that I was not only a fellow believer, but a fellow pastor, just broke down and shared his heart with me. He was going through a tremendous trial in his own life, uh, family issues, you know, and, and we had a chance, just as he shared, just to lay hands on one another and to pray for one another. And this is what the Lord wants for us. So let me encourage you with that as you travel. Please find a place to worship. So as they sought and found these disciples, uh, notice how Luke just gets to the point. We found these disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and then he says, and they told Paul (laughs) through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now we've been observing all the way along Paul's journeys, you know, the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and it keeps coming up over and over and over. And it reminds us of the fact that it is so important for us to be submitting our, our lives to the Lord. And, you know, we have the Word of God. And so we read the Word of God, looking for God not just to minister to us and speak to us and build us up, but also to direct our lives. And so Paul, as he's meeting with these believers, these believers are, according to here, through the Spirit, telling Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, no doubt, shared with him his life that he was an apostle, what he was doing, that God had used him to evangelize and to plant churches. And Paul being a Jew and having dual citizenship, both as a Jew and a a Gentile in the sense of, you know, he was from a, a Gentile region, you know, he was quite effective. But the Jews, as we're gonna get to, as we read in that passage, he's going to get there and begin to want to minister, but they think that he's defiled and that he's broken the law and that he's not supporting the word of God. In fact, that he's uh, defiling the word of God. So as was often the case, just as those disciples that he left on the beach of Miletus, you know, they didn't want him to go. They, they wanted him to, <clears throat> to stay. They wanted Paul to be around to minister in the future. But uh, Paul had said earlier, everywhere I go and in every city, the Holy Spirit is testifying that when I get to Jerusalem, trouble awaits me. And so it is a natural emotional reaction as they, they probably likely were also getting from the Holy Spirit that, that there was trouble ahead for Paul that at the same time they were saying to him, don't go, don't go. As is 
so often the case when when Paul told them that he was headed for trouble, they were like, well, then avoid the trouble. Don't go there. And it brings up an interesting point for us, especially if we believe the Lord is leading us somewhere to do something, that there might be people who come into our lives who want to say, well, why would you do that? I can give you a few examples. One example is when uh, my daughter Rachel was younger, uh, she was a teenager and she wanted to go on her first, first missions trip. There was a, a local church that we had been a part of that had a, a large youth group and, and uh, they were, the church had somehow been connected with some missions in Africa. And so they were headed to the region of Namibia. And so uh, Rachel had said, hey, can I go? And we said, sure, absolutely. You know, why wouldn't we want our kids to have that kind of experience and to be built into their lives? And so we were talking to one of our neighbors um, who also were good friends of ours and they were also believers, just went to a different church. And as we were talking and sharing this, the parents were like, oh my gosh, why would you do that to your child? And we're like, what, what are you talking about? And they're like, I mean, she's going to Africa. I mean, she could get typhoid, she could get malaria, uh, she might get raped by savages, you know, and they're saying all these things to us, and they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> We've prayed, there's a group prayed, there's a whole group going of adults and kids, there's like 25 people going. And they're going, they have an arrangement, I mean, look, anything can happen, right? <clears throat> when we get in our cars to run to the supermarket, we can have a fatal accident, right? Anything can happen. But we're, we're doing this to serve the Lord. She wants to go. I mean, this is, we're not pushing her. We're not telling her you're going to do this. This is something she wants to do. And so we had, you know, kind of that, you know, wow, we would never let our kids do that. And we're like, well, you know, we believe the Lord wants us to do it. And, and she'll tell you, if you ever ask her about that trip, that was what lit the spark in her life. And, you know, of course, today she's serving as a missionary on the field in Italy. But, you know, just because we're going into something that might be uncomfortable and even dangerous doesn't mean that we shouldn't go. What we need to be sure of is what is the will of the Lord and what is he calling us to do? Uh, again, when Landon and Rachel were headed out, when, when Landon, before they met, he initially had gone to <clears throat> a church and they were, they were uh, sending a team to London to plant a church and uh, he was making a three-year commitment. There were, there were friends and family back then who were telling him, you know, why are you doing this? You know, you're kind of in the middle of your college studies. You're kind of walking away from your education to do this. And he's like, but I know the Lord's calling me to go. And he had quite a bit of opposition. Fast forward, you know, he met Rachel. They got married. Uh, he's come back from London. Now they're on staff at a church there in the town where he had grown up. And uh, he was there on staff for about four years and toward the end of that time as they had felt the Lord was stirring their hearts to go, go on the mission field again. And they began to share that both with the staff and with, with family. There was a lot of opposition. People who didn't agree with it, they didn't understand it. They were telling him they didn't think he should, they should go as a family. Plus, they had just had their first grandbaby for, for you know, ourselves as well as uh, the in-laws. And so everybody was kind of like, hey, we... We're not so sure this is what you should do. So when God is speaking to your heart, you have to follow. You have to obey. And it's very important for us to listen to the Lord. 
Now, we're not to just cast ourselves into danger just mindlessly. But if God's calling us to do something, if if God is speaking to our hearts, then we need to do it. And, you, you know, don't just think, you know, hey, a call to the mission field somewhere to a foreign land. It could be something simple, like perhaps this missions team is going to come out and perhaps we're going to need to take a few days off from work and join them and you know, uh, Jesse's been doing this thing the last few years. You know, he's uh, the street evangelism. I mean, it may come down to that. Maybe this is what we need to do to be more forthright and, and uh, outreaching to people and more direct with people and, you know, just asking people, hey, do you know Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have, have you, have, do you know who Jesus of Nazareth is? Have you heard of him? You know, you'd be surprised. There are people who, other than using his name as a swear word, don't know who he is. And so, as we do these things, yes, difficulties may come. And we cannot allow emotion because of our own fear of change or of our own fear of difficulty. Let those things deter us. So verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children. So look at the bond here formed with these disciples in seven days. Till we were out of the city and then we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. So in this short time, this bond between fellow believers, they followed them out of the city. They knelt down together and they prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. You know, let me say this here. Uh, I hope that we're all either given with the gift of hospitality or whatnot, but uh, I hope we're inviting people over to our homes and uh, fellowshipping with them, whether they be people who don't know Christ and we need to invite them in just so we can get to know them and hopefully share Christ with them, but also fellow believers just to have fellowship. But, but as people leave, just to be able to say to them, look, before you go, how can I pray for you? And to pray for them. You know, God is building us all up to minister to other people. He's putting his, his life in us so that we can minister to other people in his name. So a simple little thing, when you have somebody who comes by your house before they leave, hey, how can I be praying for you? And then stop and pray for them right there. And then, you know, it's a wonderful thing to do. We don't do it enough, but we've done it many times. Being in a restaurant, especially when we're traveling, going to a conference or something, and the server comes up and you get to know them a little bit and say, hey, you know, hey, how's things you know, going in your life? Rather than going, hey, you know, where's my drink? You didn't bring it yet. And, you know, those kinds of things. And we begin to talk to them and just get to know them a little bit. And, and so often we've said to them, so, you know, do you know Christ or how can we be praying for you? And we've seen people just break down in tears, you know, as our server. And just all of a sudden there's an opportunity to minister. So, you know, just praying with people. You'd be surprised at how simple a thing that is. But to do it, people remember that. Because it touches the heart of God and it touches their heart. So they had taken their leave. They boarded the ship. They returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and greeted the brethren and stayed with them for a day. So again, they they come, they find some brethren. This time it was only a day, but they met with the fellow believers. Verse 8, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. 
and stayed with him. It's interesting how Luke designates this. He says he was one of the seven. Well, where, where did that happen? Well, back in Acts chapter 6, you may remember that was the, the chapter where Peter and, and John and the other apostles were needing to minister to the, the growing church there. It was growing rapidly in Jerusalem. And they said, look, we, we don't have time to wait on tables and to serve people ourselves. We need to, to study the word of God and give ourselves to prayer and be prepared to minister. So then he said, you guys appoint from among yourselves, because this was a Hellenistic problem, a, a, a Greek problem of people who were becoming believers. And it says, you, uh, in Acts chapter 6, seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And then in, uh, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then it lists the others. So this Philip that they're running into here now in chapter 21 is the same Philip that we saw all the way back some 15 or 20 years earlier in chapter 6. And he was one of the original deacons or servants who was appointed to serve the church back during that period of time. And then you may remember just a little bit later in Acts chapter 8 that the, the Spirit of the Lord was working and moving in Philip's life. And remember, God had sent him to uh, preach the gospel. He sent him down to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he took him up to the region of Samaria and had him preach and minister there. And so this man, Philip, certainly had been given giftings from the Lord that were greater than just being able to serve and to minister to uh, tables. Uh, now he is an evangelist. Now he's traveling as the Lord leads, and, and we find him now settled down. And it says in verse 9, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. As you look at that, you may say, well, <clears throat> what do I make of that? Well, <clears throat> first of all, the, the gift of prophecy uh, has two aspects to it. There's the, the aspect of foretelling, where the Lord reveals something, you know, that may be happening in the future. Uh, but also, uh, the stronger definition of the word prophecy is forthtelling, which is declaring the word of God. It's probably a bit akin to a preacher, you know, someone who's heralding or declaring. But the, you know, having the gift of prophecy, the New Testament gift, it could be either flavor, so to speak. But so often it was this gift of declaring something from the Word of God and applying it to a situation. So it's interesting that he had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now let me remind you, back on the day of Pentecost... Uh, in chapter 2 of Acts, it says, but this, uh, Peter's speaking this, he says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, listen carefully, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants." I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now fast forward here a few years later, we're in Philip the Evangelist's house. He's raising his family in the Lord and he has four daughters who are prophesying. They're filled with the spirit. The prophecy of Joel has come to rest on the house of Philip. Philip. 
And since Philip had these four daughters, we wonder, because we don't know, did perhaps they speak a word to, to Paul as well? So there's nothing recorded there. But you know, Paul was encountering these warnings from people along the way. And, and let's remind ourselves that the warnings were, in many cases, Paul, don't go. But as you go, know that there's trouble ahead. There's warnings coming from where you're headed. You're, you're following God's will, but you're headed into the eye of the storm, so to speak. So the warnings were intended to prepare Paul not to stop him from what he was doing, from what God had called him to do. So as we stayed many days, verse 10, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now we had met this man, Agabus, earlier back in Acts chapter 11. And it said back in chapter 11, verse 27, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then disciples, each according to his own ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they also did, sending it by, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And it was out of this prophecy that Agabus made back in chapter 11 and through this famine that Paul uh, continued throughout his ministry to serve and to minister the churches that were in need, especially from famines and from this particular famine. And so this man Agabus had been used of the Lord. He had been proven a prophet because what he had said, this foretelling aspect here we see, had come true. And so Paul, uh, now having this man Agabus, who was a proven, a tried and true prophet, uh, came and he took this belt from Paul, his sort of the sash around his waist, and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So he enacted this little scene, which was kind of reminiscent of what happens with the Old Testament prophets. We saw uh, throughout the Old Testament, Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah and others, and some of the minor prophets acting out prophecy, uh, not just saying it, but acting it out in front of the people at the urging of the Lord. And so here Agabus sort of acts out this scene and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And that was exactly what was about to happen as Paul walks into the city. Again, a warning to prepare himself for what was ahead. Now, when we heard these things, verse 12, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So there's the emotional appeal, not the spirit-filled appeal. The spirit was saying, hey, there's a warning. As you go, get ready. But the emotion side of that is, if you know it, why do it? Why walk into it? But again, you have to obey what God is putting in your heart, how he's speaking to you, how he's leading you. Then verse 13, then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? The language is lacking here. What it's saying in the original language when it says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? That breaking my heart is sort of the idea of pulverizing, just beating it into a dust. And so he's communicating here that his heart is being broken to such a degree. He says, don't you understand? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go off into this sort of foray this morning on what was Paul's heart toward the Jews, toward his fellow brethren. But for extra credit, 
If you want to read in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, especially in chapter 11, you will see Paul's heart displayed on full display for how he loved his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews, and how he longed for them to hear the gospel and to believe and to receive the gospel. And by this point in time, Paul's already written letters to uh, Ephesus and uh, Corinth and to Rome, the, the church at Rome. And so when you, when you read Romans 9, you see this is Paul's heart. This is what he's building toward. So as he's now going, and we're going to see this in these next few chapters, where this whole thing takes him is his heart, his desire to minister to people and to share the gospel, where it leads him. In fact, we've just completed, as we've been reading through chapter 21 here, uh, we've put an end to what's called the third missionary journey. Now, there are many people, as we get into the latter part of Acts and finish this up, as he gets uh, put in jail and sent on trials and ends up appealing to Caesar and gets sent to Rome, there are some who say that you know, Paul had three missionary journeys and then there's the imprisonment. But there are others, and I sort of fall into this camp, that says, no, that, that whole prison thing was Paul's fourth missionary journey. Where the Lord just sent him again, this time bound, but he sends him into places God very specifically controlled exactly where he wanted Paul to be. So Paul's saying here, you're weeping, you're breaking my heart, you're playing on my emotions. I know what God's called me to do. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had come to this place in his life where he was just dead to himself. And he was alive to God in Christ. That's why he wrote these things. He wrote this in Ephesians. He wrote this in Galatians. He wrote this in Romans. And then it comes to verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, well, the will of the Lord be done. This was not just a fatalistic throw it to the wind kind of a statement. Well, if we can't persuade you, then whatever, whatever will be, will be. This is no, then the will of the Lord be done. And if the Lord wants to prevent you from going, then we pray that he would stop you and put a block in your path. But... If the will of the Lord is we're wrong, emotionally speaking, and if the Lord really wants you to do this, then the best thing is for the will of the Lord to be done. Now understand this about the will of the Lord. God's will never contradicts God's word. God's will never contradicts God's word. It's so important for us to have this attitude. We've talked about this, but we're talking about it again because it comes up here again. We need to understand that the will of God is the most important thing. Doing what God wants us to do, being where God wants us to be, doing the things God wants us to be doing, that's the most important thing. So the will of the Lord be done. You know, we fight and wrestle with issues, don't we, all the time? I do. And as we fight and wrestle with those issues, what we should be doing as we go through that process is continually laying it before the Lord. I, I think of the, the Old Testament, I can't remember what king it was, but people were sending letters to him and they weren't good letters. And he goes into his inner chamber and it says there that he spread out those letters before the Lord. And he said, Lord, what do you want me to do with this stuff? And that's the attitude we need to have as we fight and we wrestle with issues, sometimes we strive 
with something over a long period of time. Sometimes we come to the end of our rope and we say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go with this. I don't know how to handle it. And so we just commit it to the Lord, just like these people did. And they said, well, the will of the Lord be done. So we're just going to kind of sit back here and say, Lord, how do you want to direct us? Remember in Acts 16, what a beautiful picture that was of they were traveling and they tried to go to this region and minister, but it says the Holy Spirit prevented them. They tried to go to a different region, to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't allow them to be led in that way by the Spirit of God is such a desire of my heart and I'm sure of yours. But so often as we're struggling with these issues, one of the things that we lack in that struggle is peace. Now we have peace with God through salvation, but there's the peace of God. And peace comes when we commit something to the Lord and when we stop striving and we stop attempting to, listen, manipulate the circumstances to influence the outcome. I know there's no control freaks here listening to me today who do this. We all do this, don't we? Striving, attempting to manipulate the circumstances and to influence the outcomes. Listen, you can't fight against God. You can't make God do what you want him to do. He's not a genie in a bottle. And he's not here to serve us in that way. You see, it is we who serve him. Just rest in the Lord. You know, I was thinking about this and I just thought about this issue of peace. Of, you know, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But if there's one thing I see in the world right now and especially in the church of Jesus Christ is a lack of peace in people's lives. We're so stirred up about things. And we're running 10,000 miles an hour and our schedules are packed full and we never have any time to stop. Listen, I'm going to share some scriptures with you and I want you to hear these. I've got a lot here. I'm not going to share all of them. Psalm 46. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come and behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. Even to the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Listen, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. How do we find peace? We got to be still in his presence. We got to quiet our stormy hearts and calm our conflicted minds. And so often what I do is I'll sit down with my Bible and a notebook and when all this garbage is rushing through my mind, uh, yeah, don't forget next Tuesday I got to do this. You know, I write all that stuff down, just get it out of the way so I can focus and say, Lord, speak to me. Psalm 4, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him or her who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Listen to this. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Some of us are angry. Let's just be honest about it. Because things aren't happening the way we want. We need to be still and meditate. It says meditate within your heart on your bed. If you have trouble sleeping at night, and I hear this a lot from people, the answer is not medication. The answer is the peace of God. Psalm 4 goes on to say, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 29, excuse me, Psalm 119, excuse me. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Wow. Mark chapter 4, remember Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and he was sleeping. And they were looking at the wind and the wave raging around them and they were getting very upset. And it says in Mark chapter 4 verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Hey Jesus, what's wrong with you? How can you sleep at a time like this? Verse 39, then he arose and he rebuked the wind. And he turned around and he said to them, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves ceased. And then he said, Where's your faith? The implication being, didn't I say we were going to the other side? And we think that because there was a wind and a wave and a storm, that Jesus wasn't going to fulfill his promise. Hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Just because there's a storm doesn't mean that God isn't involved. Listen to these verses here. John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. If you want the peace of God, cast your cares upon the Lord. John 16.33 These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Amen? We just read it in the psalm this morning. Where does it say? The help of man is nothing. Remember that the next time you watch the news and you're looking for some solution to some global problem. Man does not have the answer. Only God has the answer. There's so many. I I can't even read all of them. And I only have a smattering here. I will quote this one that's a familiar one. I hope you have this underlined in your Bible. If you don't, take your pen and reach over to your neighbor and underline it for them. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. That's something we probably need to circle, right? And let the peace of God, Colossians 3, rule in your hearts. That means to act as an arbiter. Let the peace of God sort out the garbage, the good from the bad. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. You see, God desires to reveal his will to you and to me more than I desire to know it. Because that's who he is. Maybe we need to say goodbye to practices as well as to people. Meaning things from the past. You see, sin, sinful practices, sinful habits will always keep us from God's will. Sin is not going to help us on the path to discovering and following God's will. Sin has to be dealt with so that we can follow God's will. Maybe we need to say goodbye to practices, but also to people. You say, but don't I want to share God, the gospel with people? Of course we do. But if, if the influence of those people is greater than the influence of the Holy Spirit or the influence of God on you, 
then maybe you need to step away from certain relationships which are harmful and caustic and which are impeding your walk with the Lord. Here's a question. What are you clinging to right now that is keeping you from walking with God and from doing the will of God? The answer to that is, once you determine what that is, is to just cast it on to the Lord. So we stopped to go through that for a moment because I, I just, as I was studying, it's just like, I, I just felt like the Spirit was just saying, we need to stop here for a minute and to deal with these things. The will of the Lord. Verse 15, and after those days we packed, we went up to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, what's happening right now is around AD 57, which is about 25 years after Pentecost. And we're told that this Manasin was an early disciple. That means he either could have been a disciple in the days of Jesus or certainly from uh, more likely from the days of Pentecost from when the church was founded. So this, this is a disciple who's been around who's at least 25 years old in the Lord. And so they come upon this disciple and he's just mentioned here, but I'm sure by mentioning him that there was also something in that encounter with this man, this, this now old saint. You know, and part of what our society does is we cast aside people as they get older, don't they? And we're, like, we're looking for the fresh new thing, the new thing. This is the push in social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Hey man, that's old school. That's the way you did it 30 years ago, but that's not the way we do it today. Well, you know what? Old school sometimes is the right way. You can't get to somewhere, you can't learn something until you go through the steps, until you go through the process, until you've done it yourself. And sometimes God has to teach us lessons by taking us through the muck and the mire so that we can learn it. Sometimes old school is the only way we can learn things. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Now this James was the half-brother of Jesus all the way back in, I can't remember, I think it was in chapter 8, James the Apostle, James and John, uh, that James had passed away, he had been martyred. And so this James is the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the epistle of James. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things, that is Paul, Uh, which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That phrase again, told in detail, the sense there is that he recounted every single thing that God had done. And why did he do that? Part of it is he knew as he came in that this, this issue of his ministry to the Gentiles was going to be a problem because he's back at Jewish Central He's at the, the headquarters of the, the, where the church was founded there in Jerusalem. But as we find out here, as we read, that there were many Jews who had been saved. There had been a, a, just a release of God's spirit there in Jerusalem. There were just tons of Jews who believed, but they were clinging to the old ways. They were following the law and all of that. And Paul, of course, had, in, a, he, in Galatians, of course, he talked about law and grace and what he had discovered in the freedom in Christ that we have and that... Uh, It's not that you don't have to even look at the law or keep the law, but the, the law cannot save you. The law doesn't have anything worthwhile to ultimately help you uh, in your walk with Christ. And so 
as he told these things in detail with the things which God had done through his ministry, when they heard it, verse 20, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many, you know, myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they're all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach, and this is, of course, false, uh, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. And, and Paul never did that. He never said forsake Moses. He just taught them to follow Jesus, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. So if we were to put this in the modern day language, this is fake news about Paul. And you know, keeping the law or the, any other Jewish practice or any other right doesn't make a person more holy or more right before the Lord. And if you've been around a while as a believer, perhaps you've attended other churches, that, you know, certain denominations have certain practices and sometimes within that group, they will sort of say, well, you've got to do it this way or you've got to do it that way or you have to believe this sort of fine point of doctrine and if you don't, and as they do that, they sort of lay a burden upon people and Paul's like, listen, it's the gospel, it's Jesus Christ. It's really simple. We stick to the simple things of God's word and we don't add to it. And that's why, of course, we're gonna find out in just a moment that the Jerusalem elders, the Jerusalem council, back in Acts chapter 15, they had to write that letter because there was that dispute coming back from the first journey, right? Where they were saying, oh, what are you out there teaching the Jews? And what are you actually teaching, Paul? And so it says here in verse 23, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. So what they're doing here is trying to smooth things over and keep things from blowing up and erupting into a riot, which didn't work. And they said, take them, be purified with them and pay for their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you were nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So by doing this, these, these men who had taken a vow of consecration, by Paul coming alongside them and sponsoring them and paying out of his own pocket, which by the way, this paying their expenses was a quite a, an expensive process for Paul. This wasn't just, hey, here's five bucks for each guy. This was like, you know, empty your pockets kind of a thing. But, according to, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, or from sexual immorality. So they're making a distinction here saying, for the Gentiles we told them this, but for the Jews, they need to keep the law. And so that's sort of the implication here that they're dealing with. Going back to Acts 15, as they concluded their letter, it says in Acts 15, 28, 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. So now it seems like they're their mind has sort of changed a little bit. That was, that was for the Gentile believers, but for the Jewish believers who are zealous for the law now and who are keeping the law, Paul, you're stirring things up. Verse 26, then Paul took the men. He said, okay, I'll do that. He took the men the next day, having been purified with them. He entered the temple to announce the expiation of days of purification. It was all just part of the ritual of coming and going through this process of being dedicated to the Lord, and at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. 
And you say, why did Paul do this? Did Paul compromise? And I don't think he did. He wrote in 1 Corinthians, or again, this had been written prior to this point in time. Paul wrote, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. This was Paul's heart. So that he could win people to Christ. He wanted to have a platform to minister. Now when the seven days were almost ended, verse 27, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, against this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So they had no evidence. They were just throwing things out to stir it up. And all the city was disturbed, verse 30, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. That is the doors to the temple. And so all of a sudden, in in a split second, this thing has escalated, right? Somebody dropped a bomb. It was like somebody dropping a flashbang in the middle of the crowd. Bam, and all this confusion takes place. And when we look at these things, we have to understand there is a spiritual force of wickedness behind this, right? Read Ephesians 6, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the devil is there stirring up trouble. And as they were seeking to kill him, verse 31, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, the Romans, of course, occupied Jerusalem. Remember, they're under Roman rule, and they had a garrison stationed not too far away in the Antonio Fortress. And so they were hearing about this, and they were like, hey, you guys need to come. Something bad's going down, right? So it's like dial 911, and then all the sirens come. And immediately, verse 32, he took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the soldiers, in other words, the people who were causing the uproars, they saw them coming, they're like, whoa, and they backed off. And then the commander came near and took him and commanded him, that is Paul, to be bound with two chains, and that means between two soldiers. So thus begins the imprisonment of Paul. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Assuming, of course, Paul created this whole mess, that he caused this turmoil. And remember, as we think now back in Acts, uh, earlier in Acts chapter 20, when Agabus had, had come and prophesied, when you get there, he's gonna, you're going to be bound uh, by the hands of the Gentiles. Who's binding him? These Gentile Roman soldiers. And so the, this prophecy is being fulfilled right before their eyes. Verse 34, and some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. That's where the soldiers were. It's like uh, the, the, the minimum security jail is not going to work in this situation. We need to put him in the middle of where we sleep to protect him. 
And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Like they were trying to literally tear Paul apart, rip his arms off. So what did they do? They had to basically pick him up, and I don't know how they did it, if they did it over their head or whatever, but they had to carry him to get him out of there. And when he uh, reached the stairs and they carried him, it says, verse 36, for the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. The away with him was not saying, put him in jail. The away with him was saying, kill him. It was equivalent to what they cried out to Jesus when they said, crucify him. This is their heart. And this is where we stop. It's kind of in the middle of the story. And we'll pick up here and go through chapter 22 next week. But you can see here now as Paul has arrived, these prophecies are being fulfilled. And doors are about to open for Paul that he never could have opened. Going all the way back to Acts chapter 9. Remember the prophecy uh, over Paul when he got saved was that he must bear the name of Jesus before kings. How was he going to get before kings? This is the method. This is part of the will of God. And so Paul was ready to not only be bound, but also even to die for Jesus. What an amazing story. So stay tuned here. Read ahead. Get your bearings. Uh, uh, Paul's fourth missionary journey is about to start. As he go through these trials, he'll end up in Caesarea for two years. Then he'll appeal to Caesar and they'll send him to Rome. And that's the rest of the book of Acts is what happens here. And it's an amazing thing as we see how God continues to direct Paul's life to be used in an incredibly powerful way. And here's the thing. This is not just for us to learn. This is for us to say, I want my life to be used in the same way that God used Paul's life. And we want to be open to that. So let's, let's be open as we continue to study to see what God's will is for us. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And as we now come to your table and we partake together, would you minister, Lord, would you bless us? Would you draw us close? Lord, if there's any this morning who have never believed in Jesus or received by faith the salvation that you so freely offer, Lord, it's just like you tell us in, in that beautiful verse in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, I pray that there are some, that there may even be many this morning who are listening who need to just turn right now and say, Lord, I want that eternal life. Lord, forgive me of my sin. So Lord, would you do that among us this morning? And you can do that right there where you're sitting and where you're listening. And God's word tells us that as we do that, that he will enter in and he will have fellowship with us and our lives will be changed. They'll be transformed. We will now begin to experience the peace of God. We will now begin to experience what it means to be forgiven and have our guilt removed. The Old Testament says, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he separated our sins from us. Lord, we thank you for that this morning, and that's why we come to the table. And this morning, if you are a believer in Christ, even if you just gave your life to Christ, come to the table and partake of the communion. At home this morning, we encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to go grab something, some juice, a, a cracker, and partake with us as we join to the Lord's table.
In Jesus' name, amen.